If you're a regular worshipper in Charlotte Chapel, you know that last year Nita and I had the privilege of visiting one of our mission family, Teresa Wilson and her partner, Beata Vosner, uh, who were working in Papua New Guinea, uh, translating the New Testament into the Samat language. And in order to visit the Ninigo Islands, uh, where the people live, we flew in a small Cessna plane. And the mission aviation department had decided uh, that single-engine aircraft, such as the one we are flying in, should always be within 50 miles of land, which is very comforting. Um, and the Ninigo Islands are actually 100 miles out in the ocean. So, this was just about possible. So, leaving the coast, that's where it is, way out in the blue somewhere, see the map. Leaving the coast, we just headed out 10,000 feet up in this little plane over the open ocean. Uh, the only thing we saw on the whole journey uh, was a large container ship, but it didn't look very large from 10,000 feet, believe me. And around about an hour into the journey, at the 50-mile mark, we passed what is called in aviation the point of no return. After this point, we had to go on and got enough fuel to go back. And thankfully, we went on to safety. We finally spotted the main island and the airstrip with a pair of trousers as a windsock. And finally, we landed on the grass airstrip on the main island. Now, important though that was for us at that particular time, there is an issue of greater importance that I want to raise with you this morning for you to think about because it is of utmost importance to all of us here and maybe to some of us in particular. And the question I want to ask you to think about this morning is, and it's a sobering and serious question that I've wrestled with myself this week, is this. Is it possible to pass the point of no return with God? Is it possible to pass the point of no return with God. A point beyond which there is no going back, only forward, not to safety, but to disaster and God's judgment. Now that's the issue that the prophet Jeremiah wrestles with, as through him the Lord pleads again and again. And again with his wayward people and says to them, return to me. And the problem is that they do not return and they seem to have no interest or even awareness that they need to return. So as we continue our series that we've called Living in Hope, we begin to wonder as Jeremiah surely must have done. Is there any hope left for the people of Judah, for God's people? Maybe they are at the point of no return. So, I want us to think about this this morning. Maybe some of us have been hearing God's word, touched by God's word. God has been saying to you, return to me, and as yet... You have made no response. 
I don't mean you're not here in Charlotte Chapel because you obviously are. But I mean in your heart and will, you are still far from God. So let's read together what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah chapter 3. What God said through Jeremiah. It's very important again to have a Bible. If, there are, if you can't see one, just sort of wave a bit and someone will pass one to you because we're going to be looking at the text. It's not an easy passage to unpick, unpack. So work hard at it with me as I've been trying to do this week. We're going to read Jeremiah 3 and then the first four verses of Jeremiah 4. It's quite a long reading, but stay with it. This is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, no spring rains have fallen, yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she'd done all this, she'd return to me, but she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go and proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You've rebelled against the Lord your God. You've scattered your favors for foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father, 
and not turn away from following me, but like a woman and faithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of your backsliding. Yes, we'll sh- we will come to you. For you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and the mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruit of our father's labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly. Lord, by your word and your spirit, Disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Jeremiah, and if you want a good, succinct commentary on Jeremiah, as we follow this series, I would highly recommend anything written by Derek Kidner. Um, He summarizes the theme of these verses as follows, and this is really a key to understanding what this is all about. This is what he says. There is a problem with free forgiveness. If you can always wipe the slate clean, how much does it matter what you write on it next? It is a problem for both parties. Not only for the one in the wrong, who may feel he can get away with more and more, but also for the one who forgives, who has to wonder what his forbearance may be doing to the other person. Here God sets about shaking his people from their complacency. So let's start where the prophet starts. Where his people actually are at this time. Like our Lord's parable, they are like the prodigal who is still in the far country, not yet in the pigsty, but enjoying life to the full with little thought of the father and home. Let me summarize their position with three points and hope it will help you to remember them. You can summarize their behavior as brazen behavior without any shame. If you grew up or attended uh, the Christian Brethren, if you're from that background, you may recall that certain parts of the Bible are deemed not suitable for the public reading of Scripture. I'm not sure about it, some of you will correct me at the door, but I suspect that Jeremiah 3 falls into this category. Uh, The language is very uncompromising. In fact, uh, the Hebrew scribes actually provided a substitute for the word translated ravish in verse 2 because it was so crude and uncompromising. However, 
Serious situations call for strong language. If you were sleepwalking through a minefield, my last concern would be choosing my words carefully. Excuse me, do be careful. I would be screaming at you at the top of my voice. And the people of Judah are not sleepwalking. With eyes wide open, they have voluntarily chosen to desert the Lord, their husband, and give themselves to many other lovers. So the Lord describes them in verse 1 as a prostitute with many lovers. And they are not satisfied. They are still looking for lovers. The words are uncompromising, are they not? He says, you're like a prostitute by the roadside looking for clients. Or you're like a nomad, the word probably means an Arab bandit, in the desert seeking travelling victims. Yet without any embarrassment, verse 3, yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute, you refuse to blush with shame. So they continue to display this brazen behaviour despite the seriousness of their sin. Uh, And at the beginning of this passage, the Lord reminds them that their unfaithfulness means that he is fully justified in divorcing them. And if this happens, there is no way back. Look at verse 1 again. If a man divorces his wife... She leaves him and marries another man. Should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you've lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 1. Now, God's law, you need to understand, given through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, laid down very strict requirements about divorce and remarriage. And they said this, if a man gets fed up with his wife and she no longer satisfies him and he decides he's had enough of her and says to his friend, you can have her instead. Then he cannot later down the road say, oh, I think I'll have her back now. Because to do that is not only to degrade her, but to degrade the institution of marriage and to defile the whole of land and the society, God's chosen society. And the Lord says to the people of Israel, look, you're playing with fire here. I'm perfectly justified in divorcing you. And if we go down this route, there is no way back. Yet the people continue with their brazen behaviour. Not only that, despite the consequences of their sin. Look at verse 3, 2 and 3. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Now again, you need to know God's law. The people of Israel lived under a very strict cause and effect law. We don't live under the same law, but this was a national law. Not in the same way anyway. And the Lord said to them... If, when you get to this promised land, if you faithfully obey the Lord, then the Lord will bless you with rain at the right time, good crops and prosperity. Deuteronomy 11. But he warned them, Deuteronomy 11 verse 16, Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. The ground will yield no produce. You will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Couldn't be clearer, could it? It's kind of cause and effect. Worship other gods, no rain. Then no crops. And in Jeremiah's day, the people were worshipping other gods. And guess what happened? No rain. No crops. Yet they still paid no attention. These were warning signs from God to say, look, when this happens, 
Just check it out. The people paid no attention. Maybe they blamed it on bad luck rather than global warming. I don't know. But they made no connection between their sin and the consequences of sin that they were suffering. Now, we don't live under that same direct cause and effect. But the principle remains the same. Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Galatia, he says, Do not be deceived. deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I simply ask you this morning, are we making the connection? Or do we think we can bypass God's law? We can sin with impunity and it will have no effects whatever in our lives. Or are things happening in your life that are causing you to stop and say, I need to do a spiritual checkup here. I am unfaithful to the Lord. And the Lord goes on with the people of Judah. He says, they still carry on with their brazen behavior despite the lesson of their sister. The Lord pictures the divided kingdom of Israel, Israel in the north under the name Israel, Judah in the south, as two sisters is the theme that's developed by Jeremiah's younger contemporary, Ezekiel, uh, later on if you're interested in Ezekiel 23. And what he's saying is, the nation of Judah watched while her sister committed adultery, was unfaithful to the Lord, with terrible consequences. When Jeremiah was prophesying about a century before, their land had been invaded by the Assyrians, the people had been carted off into exile, and the nation was no longer in existence. And he says, surely at that point you should have stopped and said, that's a lesson I need to take to heart. I need to do something about it. And yet the people of Israel paid no attention at all. In fact, the Lord passes a terrible indictment on Judah. He says, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Why does he say that? Because at least Judah had an example to warn them. The people of Israel didn't have that example. Very interesting, isn't it, when we sin and we see the effects of sin in other people's lives, how we always think that somehow we're the exception. It won't happen to us. Or we do what the people of Israel did, the people of Judah did. They made a superficial response. Look, at, look what it says. The superficial response is what you might call word-only worship. The Lord says, have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? They're saying all the right kind of things. This is how you talk, says the Lord, but then you do all the evil you can. They fail to walk the talk. And again, how easy it is for for us to do that, is it not? To say all the right things, to sing all the right things. And yet it doesn't affect how we live. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ himself made the same criticism of the descendants of these people in the same city of Jerusalem, quoting another prophet, Isaiah. He said, "This people worship these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now will you notice that all of this was going on, it's very interesting, if you look at verse 6, it was all going on in the reign of King Josiah. Good King Josiah that had 50 years of the most abominable evil under his father Manasseh. This young king came to the throne. He turned the nation back, seemingly, 
They discovered God's law, probably in the book of Deuteronomy that we've been quoting from. And superficially, it looked like there was a great revival going on in the nation. The temple was full. But the Lord sees through it all and he says it's pretend religion. In spite of all this, verse 10 of chapter 3, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. Now, pretend religion is a very dangerous thing to practice. You see, you can fool all the people all the time, but you cannot fool God, because he sees through the pretense. Jesus called it hypocrisy, putting on a mask, play acting. And how easily we do it in church. We sing the hymns. And the modern songs. We raise our hands. Nothing against that at all. We clap, we rejoice. We go through the motions. We're involved in Christian service. But it can, if we're not careful, all be pretend religion if our hearts are far from God. And worst of all, you can hear God's word and it fails to move you to do anything at all. Oh, it can move you. But unless it moves you to action, it's pretense. So, people of Judah, brazen behavior. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story for them or for us. Look at the other side of it. There's a second theme running through these verses. Persistent pleading. You see, the Lord would have been fully legally justified in divorcing his people and having done with them forever. But such is his love that he continues to plead with them again and again and again. The key word in this whole section is the word return. In different contexts, it occurs, I think, 18 times in this, these verses. And the Lord gives them, as it were, reasons to return based on his character. We can only touch on them briefly, but just look at them with me, because they're the same reasons we should have to return, because the Lord is the same Lord. First of all, the Lord says, you should return to me because I am the merciful Lord. Verse 12, go and proclaim this message towards the north. That's the people of Israel, actually. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. See, the word merciful there is the same root word that we looked at last week. It's the word used of love covenant love and in a very rare occurrence we looked at in chapter 2 the Lord uses it even of his own people I remember the devotion of your youth how as your bride you love me it's the same word mercy there followed me through the desert to a land not sown unfortunately their love didn't last very long for the bride Israel was unfaithful to the Lord her husband but he remained faithful because he's merciful after decades of unfaithfulness he's still pleading with his people who are in exile in Assyria you see, the love of the Lord, we've focused on the bad news, our behavior, but here's the good news. The love of the Lord is a love that lasts. It's a faithful love, a steadfast love. And the Lord says, I will frown on you no longer. I will not be angry forever. Mercy means God doesn't give us what we deserve, thankfully. It is a love that forgives. You see, we all need to start here. And we all need to continue here because what do we need most of all? 
What's my greatest need as pastor of Charlotte Chapel? God's mercy. What's your greatest need? God's mercy. Talk about Christian brethren. If you're a member or have grown up in the Anglican church, you'll have the benefit of going through the prayer book. When you come to the general confession, you say, how do you address God? It's a very interesting question. How do people address God? Almighty and most merciful Father. You've heard and strayed from your ways like lost sheep, followed too much the device and desires of our own hearts. Come to the communion service. I know, friends, we practice extemporary prayers, but it would do us good to pray things that are thought through and well-written and theologically sound as well as our extemporary prayers. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Quaint words, but you know what they mean? But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. In other words, his property means not where he lives, he means his character. His character is a character of mercy. But the condition for receiving mercy, God's mercy that is now available through his son Jesus and his death on the cross, is the same as in Jeremiah's day. We must acknowledge our guilt, we must admit our rebellion. Verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt, you've rebelled against the Lord your God. We must return the Lord's call to us. You see, the Lord calls to us to return. You know, you get home and you pick up the phone and ask this, this sort of disconnected buzz that says, somebody's rung you. And so you click on the numbers, 1571, and the voice says, you have three calls. And then a voice says, someone speaks to you and says, can you ring me back? And as it were, the Lord is speaking to his people. He's saying, I'm offering you mercy, but you've got to ring back. Not only that, he's not only the merciful Lord, we need to move on, he's the faithful husband. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Verse 14. Once again, the faithless people of God are urged to return to the Lord like a wayward wife to a husband, who in contrast is faithful. And the sad fact is that most of them don't respond, but that doesn't thwart the Lord's plans. Running through here is this future prospect. Jeremiah looks forward to the future. He says the Lord will choose his restored bride. Return faithless people, declares the Lord. I'm your husband. I'll choose you, one from one town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Uh, The bride, of course, is not an individual person. It's God's people. He says you'll be led by godly shepherds. Then I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Another theme developed by Ezekiel in his prophecy. And they'll have this amazing prospect of enjoying God's presence. Verse 16. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Wow, that's amazing if you're a Jew. The ark of the covenant was the sacred place where God's holy presence dwelt. Only the high priest could go in once a year carrying blood in his hands. And he says, a time is coming when there won't even be an ark of the covenant of the Lord and nobody will miss it and say, let's build another one. Why? Because God's holy presence will dwell among his people who will be gathered from all nations. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. All nations will gather in Jerusalem to honour the name of the Lord. Verse 17. The promise made through Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed is finally fulfilled. 
Now this is partly fulfilled in some measure when the people return 70 years after their exile in Babylon. But its complete fulfilment only began when Jesus came into the world and its final fulfilment will only happen at the second coming of Christ. The final fulfilment is described in the last book of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. God will be with them. He will be their God. Now, what a fantastic prospect. The Lord says, I'm your faithful husband. I'm calling you to be my bride. Will you not respond? And then he goes on even more intimately. He says, I'm the living father. Verse 19. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land. The most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. It's even more intimate, isn't it? The Lord says, the day is coming when I'll treat you like favoured sons and daughters. It's not a gender thing. Sons means full privileges, male and female, given a wonderful inheritance. And these are very poignant words, are they not? And his commentary on Jeremiah Brueggemann says, Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament scholar, says, verse 19 is one of the most poignant verses in the whole prophecy. The Lord says, I thought you would call me Father. The Lord longs that we might enter that intimate relationship with him where we can call him our Father. He calls us as a father calls his children back. It would be over 500 years after this that it was finally fulfilled through Jesus. It's wonderful words in Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. An amazing privilege that God the Father calls us and longs that we might respond by calling him Father. Those were her parents. Babies, you remember? They first say, Dada, Mama. Wow. Responding. Sadly, the people of Israel failed to respond. Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, as you've been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's a great tragedy. Cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they perverted my ways and they've forgotten the Lord their God. But finally, the Lord says one final thing about himself. As he calls them to return, he says, I'm also the great physician. Return, faithless people, I'll cure you of backsliding. You see, my problem and your problem is this. The hymn writer puts it like this, he says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The problem with us is that we have a tendency to slide back. Or to backslide. Because within our fallen nature, we have a fallen nature which only God can change if we'll return to Him. Otherwise, you'll just slide back. And God says, I can do that for you. I can change your nature. I can heal your backsliding. Wouldn't you like that? And finally, it looks as though the people have responded. If you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, the people seem to be ready to return. 
Yes, we'll come to you. You're the Lord our God. We've sinned against the Lord. The end of the chapter. We've not obeyed the Lord our God. It seems as though they've made the right response. But the Lord finally goes on to say, it will take more than mere words. So notice finally, as we draw to a conclusion, nearer conclusion, radical remedies. You see, the word that the Bible uses to describe the radical change that is necessary when God calls to his people is the word repentance. Literally means, in Greek it means, a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. And so the Lord says to his people, you've said the right words, yeah, but it's going to mean more than words. You must do what you say. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you'll return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray. Returning to the Lord means leaving behind what you've gone to. Because you've got to turn away from idols as you turn to the Lord. That's repentance. And repentance means... More than that, it means doing what you say, it means meaning what you say. And in a truthful, just and righteous way, you swear as surely as the Lord lives. He says, no good just, pious, just mouthing these pious words, even orthodox words. You must keep your promise to the Lord and so much, so must we. You see, there's an awful lot that hangs on this. You may think the big issue that hangs on this is your own eternal destiny and you're absolutely right. But it goes beyond that. Look at the outcome. Then, the nation will be blessed by him, and in him, they will glory. The nations. Philip Riken, in his commentary I've recommended, says, this shows the vital importance of true repentance. Nothing less than the evangelization of the world depends on it. The church's effectiveness in evangelization and world mission is directly tied to the sincerity of its repentance. How are we doing with our evangelism? How are we doing with our mission impact? It hinges largely on our own repentance. And the Lord concludes with a personal challenge in which literally each man and each woman in Judah and Jerusalem is challenged to repent. And it's a challenge that we leave, that is left with you and me this morning as we draw to a conclusion. Uh, two pictures are, are used to describe the radical change that is necessary. Uh, first of all, it means a broader obedience to the Lord. Or a wider obedience. I'm trying to find the right word. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 3. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Now, unplowed ground in Israel was ground that either had lain abandoned or was ground that had been left aside for a period to recover and then was sown again when the ground had regained its vitality or whatever the correct agricultural term is. I'm not good on these kind of things. The Lord says to his people, it's time to break up that unplowed ground. You see, here's the challenge to you and me. Very interesting challenge, isn't it? The Lord says, where are the areas in your life that are that you've never exposed to the real work of repentance? What are the areas of your life that you're saying to God, I don't want you to touch those? What are the hard areas of your life that 
has a no entry sign, as it were, in the rooms of your life? Or what are the areas of your life that have lain fallow for some time? Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, they'll say, Pastor, um, you'll see that I've stepped down from my responsibility of doing so and so and so and so. I think it's important for me and my family to take a break. And I'll often agree with them. I'll say, that's fine. But sometimes, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here, but it may apply to you. Sometimes we take a year out of Christian service and we never get back to it. Because you get used to it. And you're not really involved in the areas you used to be involved in. You're not really using your gifts to the full. And in fact, he says, and don't sow among thorns. In other words, don't think alongside sowing the seed of the word, as Jesus put it, you can do it among thorns because the thorns will choke you, will choke your commitment. You need to make a fresh, a wider obedience to the Lord. Now, maybe God is speaking to you this morning about some particular area in your life that has never been broken. A hardness in your heart and spirit. An area of your life, a relationship, a job, a career, even just an aspiration. And link with this as a deeper commitment to the Lord. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. Circumcision was an external sign that a man was a member of God's chosen community. But God requires, he says, something deeper. Circumcision of the heart is a theme that we don't have time to look at. It's taken up in the New Testament in Romans 2, for example, and applied to God's New Testament people. God requires a deeper work in our lives than just something superficial. Or you can be baptised in this church and would that more people were baptised. There's a service at the end of this month. I'd love to see more people coming forward to be baptised. But it's an outward sign of an inward work of God in your heart. Not just going through the motions. A deeper circumcision of the heart. A change of nature. What a challenge. A costly challenge. And you see the outcome is if we don't pay any attention to it. The outcome is we experience God's judgment. There's no middle course. It's not like, oh, that was a good sermon. I'm interested in that. Yeah, that, God touched me. I'll, I'll go away and think about that. No, you place yourself in danger of God's judgment. All my wrath will break out and burn like fire because the evil you've done burn with no one to quench it. Now you may say, well, thank goodness, that's the Old Testament. That's Jeremiah, you know. Now the New Testament says a greater salvation means greater judgment if you reject it proportionally. Why Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for my people who rejected what they've seen in me. The challenge to Christians is this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews, New Testament, 12, 28, 29. So, almost finished. Back to our original question. Is it possible to pass the point of no return? The history of Judah, God's people, says, yes, it is. They failed ultimately to respond to the challenge to return, the pleading, persistent challenge of God for decades and centuries, until finally they passed the point of no return and there was no way back on the judgment. Now that 
is a sobering thought. What about us? Only God knows. Finish with some verses from a poem. I've quoted it before, but it's so appropriate. Written out, discovered on the internet, written by a man called Joseph Addison Alexander, an American scholar and preacher who lived in the first half of the 19th century. As we conclude, the words will come up on the screen. I simply want you to think about them and the last verse in particular. This is what he wrote, and this is part of a longer poem. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious boundary by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent. And harden not your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comfort of your word and the many promises in your word, but you also thank you for the warnings in your word. That it's because you care and not willing that any should perish that you warn us to turn from our ways and to turn to you. Help us therefore not to take your love lightly, not to trifle with grace, not to see how far to the edge of the cliff we can go before we fall off. But today, if we hear your voice, we want to repent We ask that you do a deep work within us and grant that our hearts may not become hardened by sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Thank you that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of your grace. Help us not to neglect it as we respond to your word. Amen.